Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm good, uh, in part because, uh, listeners, this is our third of three episodes of where we're wrapping up the current Supreme Court term, um, and the current Supreme Court term um, is the October 2021 through June 2022 term. And, and we can consider it a wrap because now we're looking forward. We're looking forward to the October 22 to June 23 that's right. Uh, um, term. I know. I know. It's not a season. It's not like it's episodic television. It just feels that way. <laughs> it, um, it's really fascinating because, uh, and I oftentimes Nia have to tell my students this, the Supreme Court year is much like the fiscal or the federal government's fiscal year. It is exactly like the federal it, government's fiscal I mean, it runs year. from the beginning of October until the end of September. So technically the Supreme Court current term doesn't end, end, end until the end of September, but effectively, let's be very clear. Oh yeah, you couldn't pay them to stay in town over the summer. <laughs> the only folks- They got who stuff work, to do. The only folks who are working at the Supreme Court are the clerks that they already hired, okay, for the next term, who have to wade through all of the appeals- Right. That get submitted during the summer months. The 10,000 yes. requests that they get to hear yeah, this is and, and that are just mostly rejected out of hand. Just in case you were wondering, yes. they get they get yes. thousands of requests and they hear this year they heard 60. Yes. So it's not like a it's not but, like the odds are in your favor. But that said, this podcast episode is going to look at some of the noteworthy cases the Supreme Court has already announced it will hear in its next term. Right. And listeners, if you think the most recently completed Supreme Court term was chock full of controversial <laughs> landmark, I either love them or hate them decisions, the next term also has, shall we say, a robust agenda. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to put it. Of you similar cases. Right. right. You should get a comfortable seat because it's going to be a bumpy ride. Um, so can I just say that that the the thing about the upcoming docket, as far as I can tell, is that it is once again like this docket, it's all over the place. There's not yeah. there's not a yes. you know, we're only going to focus on these two issues like the Supreme Court does. It takes a variety of issues in part because nine people have a variety of interests in points of the law and in in part because the country oh. is so divided and mixed and yeah, I mean, litigious. We have cases of all sorts that are coming yeah i mean although we've got a couple of redistricting cases yes and, there is one tiny little theme yes yeah we're but i mean to your point i mean the supreme court typically every term gets well over nine thousand appeals they're they're called cert writs right so you just think that within those nine thousand cases you're going to see some variety right, right. 
But then you, you throw in the justices, their clerks. And the fact, as you pointed out, you know, the United States is rather polarized right now. So um, some of these cases, um, um, you know, reflect, you know, that kind of polarization. Uh, there are cases that court has already uh, agreed to hear that deal with voting in elections. Do you want to start with the voting in election uh, cases first? Sure. Okay. So um, we have one case uh, from the state of North Carolina. <laughs> I, 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 listeners, my beloved home state. I, I, I wanted to, uh, to be very clear to our listeners, uh, Nia. Um, I started this uh, with this case in my notes uh, because it is your home state, right? Um, the name of the case is Moore versus Harper. Um, and this is a case where the North Carolina state legislature um, uh, uh, drew a redistricting map after the 2020 census. And the map was rejected by the state Supreme Court um, as an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander. North Carolina unconstitutional. Yes. The, Not the, federal. That's right. Because the state Supreme Court is only judging the North Carolina yeah, state constitution, constitution, not the federal constitution. Because as just as a clarification in case. Yeah, because as listeners may recall, the U.S. Supreme Court a couple years ago went ahead and said that partisan gerrymandering was a political question that should be decided by the states. So. So North, North Carolina was like, I. Yeah, we got this. So <laughs> the the North, North Carolina State Supreme Court went ahead and said that this map, redistricting map, was unconstitutional. Now, of course, there is a partisan angle to this. The state legislature is controlled by the Republican Party. A majority of the state Supreme Court justices, okay, were appointed by a Democratic governor. Right. So the state legislature files an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court and says, the North Carolina State Supreme Court has no authority to tell us that our map was a partisan gerrymander. Because according to the U.S. Constitution, okay, only state legislatures get to decide the time, place, and manner of voting in elections within their state. And for our uh, longtime faithful lis uh, listeners, yes, we are once again talking about the independent state legislature, legislature theory, which in a previous podcast episode, Nia and I um, spent a whole bunch of time exploring, okay? And basically, the state of or the the state legislature is saying only we, the state legislature, get to decide how North Carolinians, okay, may vote, and where their district is, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the North Carolina State Supreme Court says, no, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> we decide whether something is is North Carolina state constitutional. That's right. Okay. And my colleagues who do voting in elections are like, 
rut row shaggy because when the Supreme Court said they were going to take this case, they're having a whole bunch of, wow, the Supreme Court is going to wade in on this dispute. Okay. So, you know, the potential here is huge. Right. Okay? If they find that state legislatures can, in fact, create redistricting maps because it's part of their voting power thing. And only them. And only them. And it cuts then, out governors and it cuts out state Supreme Courts. Right. There is no check on what state. On that voted. power. Yes, on that power. <laughs> Which is quite, would be quite the difference in what we've had up until now, historically in the United States. Four centuries. Where we have, yes. where we have defined democracy as the check and balance of powers between the three branches of government. Yes. Huge. So that, that has the potential to really, really rock the boat. Or alternatively, they could say, nope, this violates the checks and balances and go back to go back North Carolina. You're going to have to redraw your map because they, they have the power to tell you that it violates the Constitution. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Yes. Alabama's a little different. Yes. In the case of uh, Merrill versus Milligan, what's at issue is whether the state of Alabama's 2020, 2021 redistricting plan um, uh, for its seven seats in the House of Representatives violated a federal law, specifically Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, for uh, listeners, this was the landmark federal voting law. It was passed in 1965, um, and it uh, its provisions uh, basically uh, uh, prohibited um, discrimination in the voting and election practices by states. Now, in a previous Supreme Court ruling, um, uh, Shelby versus Holder, the Supreme Court called into question section five of that law, um, which was the section that listed the states that had to get pre-clearance right. from either the federal courts or the United States Justice Department. Because of historical discrimination. Right. And the Supreme Court held that section five was unconstitutional because the United States Congress didn't update the list. So one could argue that the Supreme Court is could potentially be dismantling the Voting Rights Act section by section. Yes. And okay. trying to get Congress to rewrite it in some way that is is clearer. Yes. Now, what's going on in the state of Alabama is that roughly a third of Alabama's population is African American. But the state legislature in Alabama basically drew up congressional districts to where it would only be likely one of those seven districts could would be, be would, okay. be, would be a majority African American, right? So basically, the law as opposed to two and a half, which would be the correct. Yeah. I mean, if Alabama really wanted to be cautious, they would have gone ahead and carved out three majority minority districts. 
but at least two. Right. At least two. And right? they and they chose to carve out one. One. <laughs> oh, Alabama. <laughs> and, and by the way, it's not just Alabama. I mean, this is going on all over the country, right? Right. We've had uh, redistricting is a nightmare. Redistricting is a nightmare. nightmare right? it, it's it's a nightmare in almost every state because whoever's in charge Whatever tries to party, protect their yes. their party and their holdings. I, they want if if your party is if if you're Republican or Democrat, it happens on both sides, and you hold the majority to redistrict you will only strengthen your majority. Yes. You will only try to make sure that you stay in power. And that's just, it, it's not Alabama, it's all states. It's, if you think you live in a state where people don't do that, you are wrong. You are, you are completely wrong because it is a very hard thing to get people power share. Yeah, I mean- Why should they if they don't have to is what they, is how they justify that. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and frankly, that's an American tradition. I mean, why and, should I share power if I don't have to? And there are very few voters who are willing to go ahead and say my political party, which may be in control currently within my state, should give up its ability, right, to you know, stay in power up, forever. Stay in power forever, right? right. I mean, there, are, there are very few partisans who are like, no, that's anti-democratic. And I mean, small d. Right, exactly. Democratic Party, right? Democratic in the sense of we should share power because that's how we get or one. one that's how we allow the voters to pick. Right. Instead of elected officials getting to decide who their voters are. Right. I mean, because that's what we're, you know, that's what gerrymandering is. And what gerrymandering yeah. does is it moves us away from moderate and into extremes. Yes. No right. matter no matter what state you're in, you there are fewer and fewer moderates because they are forced into. Yeah, I mean, if you think about competitive districts, right? Districts, you might get more moderate candidates, okay? Because it is a competitive district, and right, right because you're trying to reach across the aisle, yeah. you're trying to get both sides to vote for you. Extreme. And potentially go ahead and turn off, okay, fifty percent of the electorate. Right. Right. So you got to be a little bit more moderate. <laughs> there, so, I mean, there should be a better way to do this. And, and, and by the way, this not for nothing. The Supremes are are going to hear these two cases, but the decisions won't come down before the midterms, right? Right. Midterm elections will happen in November under the current under the current system under the current maps. Yeah, right. right. Okay. So that's voting. So let's talk WADA. <laughs> Lotus? Hey, I don't know if you've know. Yeah, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a drought. There's a huge drought. A like I'm just country. saying that at this point, Lake Mead, you could just walk across it. Yes. I mean, it's it's not even. I mean, there are some parts where you where boats are getting beached because they're they people go away for a week and when they come back their boats no longer in the water. I That's mean, how fast the water is dropping in Lake. I mean, Maine. there are water restrictions in the states of California and Arizona where people are getting prosecuted for watering their yards. Right. 
You know who actually, I have to, by the way, go on record. I have been anti-Vegas for a long time, right? City in the desert, yada, yada, yada. Vegas actually has some of the best conservation policies compared to some other places. You know what we need to do? We need to get rid of um, almonds. Oh. Almonds are a huge water sink. They take up an enormous amount of water comparatively. We all need to start eating some other kind of nut and we need to not grow almonds in the desert. So Vegas, I'm going to give you a break and almond farmers, I'm going to say you probably can't grow almonds in the desert forever. You're going to have to find some other crop. And listeners, me and I are not anti-nut. No, we're not. We love almonds. Okay. But they are a very thirsty crop. Okay. We know that nuts in their various forms are generally good for you in terms of your health. Okay. We're just saying that perhaps we might need to go ahead and recalibrate our agricultural policies, particularly in the state of California. Yeah. uh, Because of water issues. Right. They might need to be grown somewhere else. But speaking of water. But we have a water case. We have a WOTUS case. Yeah, a WOTUS case. And again, faithful listeners, um, uh, Nia and I have a previous podcast episode about WOTUS. Yep. Waters of the United States. Waters of the United States, which is a statutory term, right? Um, In the case of Sackett versus the EPA, the Supreme Court um, hopefully will decide once and for all, what is the appropriate definition (laughs) of waters of the United States? Right. Uh, Because this is a case uh, where the Ninth Circuit Court uh, Court of Appeals Um, issued a ruling, um, and there is some question as to whether or not they chose the correct definition of WOTUS. (laughs) And you think that's silly, but if you go back and you listen to our episodes, if you have not listened to the water issue episodes, water is more valuable than gold. It's more valuable than oil. It's more valuable than anything else in the West because agriculturally it's more valuable also because cities are growing. Cities cities are still growing in the West. Phoenix is growing. Um, Cities in Texas are growing. It's an extremely important concept in regards to the Endangered Species Act. Okay? The Endangered Species Act. Right. Because guess what? Fish are people too. Yes. Okay. Um, and basically, the Supreme Court is going to have to clean up some of its own mess um, from a previous uh, uh, case where the court majority had two definitions of waters of the United States. Yeah, Justice Scalia's interpretation, which was a body of water that's connected to another body of water, physically connected. Right. And if the EPA or the Army Corps of Engineers can show that connection, then they can regulate both bodies of water. But in a concurring opinion, Justice Kennedy had a different definition. His definition was, shall we say, a broader one, a looser one, which gives both the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers much more authority to regulate a water of the United States, because for Kennedy, he said there was, if the government could show a significant nexus 
So let's say, for instance, there was a lake, and then there wasn't any water, and then there's a river. And if the federal government can show that there is some sort of ecosystem nexus between the lake and the river, the federal government can regulate both. Right? Can I can I just say that Congress could solve this? <laughs> <laughs> Congress could solve this by just defining yes and what they the consider way, to be waters of the United States. And this has been an issue, okay, for nearly 20 years. Yeah, they're not gonna. I didn't say they were gonna. I said yes. they could. Yes. I don't think they're going to because it's no. hard and they don't like to do things that are hard. Yeah. Can we talk about um, our two uh, cases that we might have to embroil M um, Hillary in? Oh, yes, 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 yes. In the, in, in the first case is? Andy Warhol Foundation v. Goldsmith. Yes. So this is so, let me, let me make sure that I understand the case. Goldsmith took a picture of Marilyn Monroe. Yes. Andy Warhol took that image and used it to paint her in that one that's pretty famous where there's lots of colors. Yes. It's Marilyn blue, Marilyn pink, Marilyn yellow, right? It's all these colors. Yes. And the Goldsmith family was like, hey, that's, that's our image, right? That's my father, grandfather, whoever, that's his image. And Warhol is saying, I transformed it. And because I transformed it per copyright law, okay, the Warhol Foundation doesn't own, oh, excuse me, the Goldsmith family. And listeners, this talk, this gets at um, um, what our, uh, our, our colleague, uh, Hillary Myers, uh, uh, went ahead and discussed with us in regards to one of the exceptions, okay, of copyright law, right? Which is if you take a copyrighted piece of art, but then you transform it, okay? You might not necessarily owe the copyright owner any money for its use. Right. You've transformed it sufficiently that it is something different. Hillary, by the way, Miller, Yes. um oh uh, i said Meyer. excuse me so that's okay yes. um it, hillary i we hopefully when this comes out she'll come back and talk to us about this because this is kind of a, a weird thing like if you see a photograph and you substantially change the photograph then do you owe and i'm not even sure that it's so much about the money as it is about Who's going to get credit for a credit for the image? Right. Yes, right. I mean, because exactly. I don't know that Goldsmith was worried. I mean, I don't know that their family is worried so much about the money as they are about, or, you know, the royalties as they are about recognizing that it's his photograph. Yeah, it's his image of her. Because most adults who are familiar with this particular, if you will, image know it because of what Andy Warhol did to it. Right. So very few of us are actually aware, and I gotta be honest, before this case arose in the lower federal courts, I was unaware of this. Uh, uh, who took the original uh, uh, picture? Me too. 
I just assumed that he had done it from his head. I didn't really think about the fact that he had a reference. He okay. had a, a photographic reference. And here's what's also fascinating. The division between the federal courts on how to define when a work of art is uh, transformative, okay, there's this huge conflict, right? Because you got the Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and other appeals courts that have one definition. But then you have the Second Circuit Court of Appeals with a completely different interpretation. Right. So part of the reason why the Supreme Court will take a case is when there is disagreement among the lower courts. And this case is has it all. Right? <laughs> it's got Marilyn, Marilyn, it's got Marilyn Monroe. It's got Andy Warhol. Yeah. It's good, right. Like it's okay. Okay. yeah, yeah. So it, it's, so yeah, it's a pretty fascinating case. And the other case that involves an artist ah. is uh, is actually a public. It's a free speech. Yes. Case right. So it's technically not Hillary, but it's kind of Hillary because. She also is our open access, one of our open access librarians, um, which is about free speech. But the, the, this, this case, um, Nia, that you're referencing is 303 Creative versus Alanis, okay? And really, uh, the case is about whether a Colorado public accommodations law can force an artist to speak or stay silent. So we're once again back to this issue of can states force businesses to provide goods and services for individuals that might contradict their deeply held, for instance, religious beliefs, right? Okay. Um, is this, it, forgive me for putting it so crudely, is this the gay cake? This case. Th this is a a similar case. Okay. This is a similar case. Uh, and by that, I'm uh, referring to a bakery that refused to sell cakes, yeah, wedding cakes for gay weddings. Yeah. The, because they had a religious belief about whether yeah. right. In 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 the case uh, you're referencing, Mia, is the masterpiece cake shop case. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Uh, I get them mixed up. Well, they, I it was decided a couple of years ago, but the court majority avoided the tough constitutional question because in that case, they went ahead and said that Colorado's um, commission that decided that the cake shop violated the Colorado law was so obviously biased against religion that the hearing okay, violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Okay. So they never got to this issue of, can the government force you to engage in speech as part of your business, okay? And does that violate the First Amendment? Okay, does that violate the First Amendment? So what are the facts of 303 created? Well, basically, they don't want, I think it was a, 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 um, a wedding, um, and I'm blanking on the phrase, it's, it's one of those firms that uh, organize and puts on weddings. 
Um, okay, an event planning sort of a thing. Yeah, wedding organizer, wedding planner business, right? But they don't want to go ahead because of religious beliefs, okay? They don't want to go ahead and um, uh, uh, plan gay marriages, gay weddings. Ah, okay. okay. But according to the Colorado Accommodations Law, as a business, you can't discriminate against. Oh, I see. Okay. Lesbians, right? Okay. Okay. This, this is your standard state accommodation law, right? You know, not, you know, just like, for instance, you can't discriminate against, you know, patrons because of their race, right? But the question becomes, can a state force you because of your business to engage in speech that you object to? Gotcha. <laughs> and of course, the argument of 301, 303 creative is, I'm an artist. This is my speech. I shouldn't have to make websites for gay couples' weddings. Yes. I don't believe in gay marriage, and I shouldn't have to engage in that. I see. Yeah. Okay. So that'll be that'll be interesting. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, can we can we talk about the students for fair admissions? They're going to be a little busy, aren't they? Oh yes. They've got two cases. Yes. What Nia is referring to is two challenges to university affirmative action programs. Uh, one case is students for fair admissions versus the University of North Carolina, um, which is what the, the the flagship university of your home state. Right? Hey, <laughs> you did not just say those words to me. I am a graduate of NC State. That's the Go Wolfpack. Go Wolfpack. I don't care about you. It's any, any anything but North Carolina. Don't talk to me. That I, is the land grant of your home state is NC State. The flagship, according to your state your state law, is UNC, right? <laughs> I'm not even speaking to you right now. <laughs> well, that's going to make this podcast episode <laughs> really difficult to pull off, right? The other case is students prefer admissions versus Harvard, okay? Okay, wait, so... One's public and one's private. I see. Yeah. Okay, so it's the same question. Yeah, basically, the Supreme Court is being asked in both of these cases uh, whether it should overrule its decision in the Grutter versus Bollinger case. Okay. In the Grutter versus Bollinger case, the Supreme Court once again affirmed that colleges and universities, okay, may use race as a factor in admissions, okay? Because it serves the um, uh, uh, compelling interest of diversity in the student body. Okay. Okay. But in the Bollinger case, just like the landmark, you know, Bakke case from 1978, what the Supreme Court said was, you can use race as one of a number of factors, but it cannot be the deciding factor and you can't use quotas. But 
Up, oh, mm -hmm. you're our 31st Pacific Islander. We only need 30. Okay. So we're not going to accept you. Like okay. that's not how. That you can't, you can't use race that way. But, but you can say everybody at our university is white and we are going to find a way to encourage more african-americans more african more asian-americans yeah, more yeah, pacific yeah. islander yeah. like so that we can the get a diverse Latinos, body right? because it will be better for everyone yes if you bring together this diverse group of people in order to have an education yeah okay and in, in basically that's always been problematic for conservatives, right? Because it's basically saying colleges, universities can use race in some undetermined manner to achieve a more diverse student population. And the Supreme Court is gonna wade back into this very controversial topic, okay, with both the UNC and Harvard cases. I mean, this, <laughs> this is going to be messy. Oh, this, yeah, this, yeah, this is going to be messy. Um, um, because, you know, what has saved colleges and universities affirmative action programs since Bakke, the Bakke decision in 1978 are moderates on the court, like Lewis Powell, who wrote the majority opinion in the Bakke case, and in the Bollinger case, Justice O'Connor, who wrote the majority opinion. But they were moderates, right? They were swing voters. Who are the moderate or swing voters? <laughs> On the current Supreme Court, Chief Justice John Roberts? That's it. He's alone. And he, I don't know that he's moderate <laughs> as so much as he's less conservative than the others, Why? which is not. Yes. That's not yeah. the same thing as being moderate. He's only moderate in comparison. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to have an interesting. Oh, we're not done yet, Nia. Oh, we got a couple more. Oh, do we? Oh, we got at least one. Uh, we got at least one more. Yeah, one more that I wanted to go ahead and mention. Okay. Okay. And and I apologize, listeners. Um, this is the um, administrative law. Okay, geek in me. Um, so please forgive me. Uh, the name of the case is Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, versus Cochrane. Um, and this is a case whether or not uh, federal uh, uh, district courts have jurisdiction um, where the Securities and Exchange Commission is seeking to enjoin a proceeding. And you may be like, wow, that sounds really technical and really boring. Here's, here's the rub, as Shakespeare would say. <laughs> At issue in this case, is the role of administrative law judges. So let's just say, for instance, Nia, you own a corporation, a publicly held corporation with stockholders. Okay. And you do something nefarious that the Securities and Exchange Commission doesn't like. <laughs> right? Let's say I'm the commissioner of the SEC. Now, 
if I want to stop your behavior, I don't go to federal court. I go to a Securities and Exchange Commission hearing that is conducted by an administrative law judge. And I might say, Nia's behavior is so bad, okay? And, you know, so harmed her uh, shock, uh, 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 shareholders. Shareholders, okay. okay. That she should be fined $1.5 million. Whoa. And an administrative law judge might say, I agree with you, Commissioner Argenbaugh. Nia and your corporation owes $1.5 million to the SEC. Because we want to set an example to other corporations, you can't engage in this behavior. Problem is, administrative law judges employed by the Securities and Exchange Commission are actually employed by the commission, hired by the commission, and can be removed by the commission. So are they independent? Well, no. <laughs> I mean, the likelihood is that they are going to find for the administration for which they work. And thus the nature of this challenge. Okay. Because we've, we've talked about this before that, that SEC is not the only Oh, no, 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 no. There no, are, no, there are lots of administrative agency or agencies that have administrative law judges. Right. And they're not part of Article Three of the Constitution. They're not part of the quote unquote federal judiciary. Which is probably good for J. Rob because that would just be thousands <laughs> more people he would have to <laughs> that he would have to administer their their work but, lives but from a checks and balances perspective yeah, where do you go if that if you disagree with that person do you have to wait until the securities and exchange administrative law judge rules against you before you can go to federal court this can have a huge impact on a business uh. Uh. and really are they independent when they're picked by the agency employed by the agency and can be fired by the agency. Well, it's another one of those conflict of interest kinds of things. Like, I, I think sometimes we, we forget that the various agencies of the government are both regulatory, but also are charged with encouraging. Yes. No, and, are charged with in, encouraging whatever behavior the thing is. So, yes. so if you're if you're thinking in terms of let's just give a different, I'm going to give a different example so I can put it in my brain properly. The Department of Agriculture theoretically protects the agriculture of the United States, right? Protects you from getting salmonella every time you eat a meal. Right. It, it tries to do that, but it also encourages agriculture in the United States. Like it's charged with both of those things. And those and, can be contradictory. Right. And so the same thing, if you have an administrative judge who is hired by the institution he's administering, how can he not be somewhat influenced by the fact that he works for the institution? 
Yeah, that's complicated. Oh, that's a that's a mess. And the Cochrane case in particular says or asks the question, do we have to wait to challenge what the SEC is trying to do to us until the judge, the administrative law judge gets gets done with the administrative hearing or can we go to federal court? Because that length of time could all could harm your business could harm your business i'll get you to, i'll get to you next year uh i won't have a business by business next, year. next year right okay okay a, you know a bunch of my shareholders are just going to go ahead and drop the stock right they're going to bail okay because the, the value of the company okay and the liquidity of the company okay might suffer dramatically by the time this wraps up gotcha okay that's a mess <laughs> right huge, huge implications huge implications because again if you're the sec okay you don't want to always go to federal court you want to basically threaten an administrative hearing to go ahead and get offending businesses to change their behavior right okay but if the supreme court says otherwise then this forces yet again the United States Congress to go ahead and clarify. Uh, and we cannot rely on the Congress. They are unreliable. Yes. So, so yay, we have another fun term to look forward to of things that are going to make us very in various, it, it, in various it, stages, happy, angry, you know, confused. And one other thing to note, Nia, the bulk of the Supreme Court's docket for its next term has not yet been decided. Right. Okay. This is just the start. Yeah. This, this, this is, these are the cases that the Supreme Court this spring said, we agree to take these and hear these in the fall. I can tell you what they do over the summer. They drink heavily <laughs> in preparation for coming back and dealing with this stuff. I mean, because the Supreme Court term. I'm, I'm kidding. One day in October. Well, hey, we don't know, right? We don't know, but I don't. I doubt. It. Although I would hope that they get a lot of R and R because it's going to be a. Oh my goodness! Another yeah. year of stuff like this. Yeah, I've had students ask me all the time. The you know, Professor about I bet your dream job is to become a Supreme Court justice. I'm like, oh my goodness, no! You could not pay me enough money. <laughs> you become a Supreme Court justice. Never. I'll give never, you never ten billion dollars a year. You'd be like, nope, nope. Okay, because my mental health is worth more than that. Yes. Okay, and that's been a long time for me just to get to this, you know, state of <laughs> equilibrium. Anyways, but the thing to remember is when the Supremes, uh, uh, the justices actually return. Okay. They have this huge, big blowout conference, right. okay, the, the, the week before the first Monday of October, where they decide what other cases they want to hear for the upcoming term, right? Right. You, so in early October, we'll get another list of, of cases. You imagine what that conference is like? A day-long <laughs> Yeah, because they have to be voted five. You have to be voted five at least. Oh, four. sorry, at least. Rule of four. At least four. four. Sorry, at least four. Yeah, the rule they, of four. Yes. Say we want to take it, and 
I'm sure there are, I'm sure there are negotiations. I'm sure that somebody has to go out for pizza and it's a very long day. Oh, oh my goodness. Yes. Uh, although it'd be interesting to be a clerk during that because the clerks are the ones that write the briefs that, yes. that, yes. that kind of get people's juices flowing. Yeah. That, that, that the justices rely upon in deciding whether or not to actually vote to hear a case. Um, yeah. But in the conference room itself, it's just the justices. <laughs> you know, you know, what would be really funny is if they voted on it in like the first 20 minutes and then they just stay in the room and pretend to yell at each other and <laughs> throw things around and, you know, okay, now you make a really loud thump and I'll, and I'll moan. Okay, go ahead. Thump. Oh, right. So that people outside the room are like, oh, what's going on in there? Either yeah, that or they just turn on the daytime soap operas and they're like, oh, good, we can catch up on, yes, you know, yeah. as the world turns or whatever it is. Or they binge watch. So what or are we they doing? binge watch? That's so right. Binge watching on Amazon Prime uh, during this. <laughs> Anyways, Mia. Uh, so we got a lot, a lot of uh, uh, really difficult, controversial cases um, uh, coming up. So, you know, for those of you who... Um, uh, need to recover a little bit from the most recently completed Supreme Court term, you better rest up um, yep. because the next one also has. Um, it's uh, going to make you as irritable as this last one did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just in different ways. Please, yes. All right, Nia. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Augie. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.